0: Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're well, wherever you may be. Today, in another packed episode from MIPCOM 2022 in Cannes, we hear from Taskmaster's Alex Horn about the latest international versions of the UK comedy entertainment format. Dr Michael Mosley discusses new BBC Studio science series How to Live to 101, Moonbug Entertainment's Nicholas Eglau on the Cocomelon Company's expansion, Bavaria Fiction's Marcus Amon on growing co-pro opportunities, and Banerjee's Rob van den Vlergel and Sil Gertsen on new balloon art talent show Blow Up. Taskmaster is a British entertainment format which sees comedians set a range of ridiculous tasks designed to bamboozle brains and put funny bones to the test. 149 episodes have been produced in the UK since the series first aired on UK TV channel Dave in 2015 before moving to Channel 4 in 2020, while over 300 episodes of international versions have been produced in territories including New Zealand, Denmark and Portugal. Creator and star Alex Horn was at MIPCOM in Cannes last week together with Avalon Director of Distribution Isabel Hughes and spoke to Nico Franks about the global rollout of Taskmaster and adapting it for different markets.
1: I'm Isabel Hughes and I'm Head of Distribution at Avalon.
2: Hello, I'm Alex Horn. I am the Taskmaster's assistant and um, um, I'm also a producer of Taskmaster. I make the tasks.
3: Tell me what you're doing here in Cannes.
2: Uh, We're in Cannes to, well, we're in Cannes, weirdly, to meet up with all the other taskmasters and taskmasters assistants from around the world. Somebody had the bright idea of gathering them in the south of France, so I've spent already an hour talking to people who do the same job as me, but in other languages.
3: So I've seen the Kiwi one, who else have you got here?
2: We've got the Croatian ones, the Norwegian ones, we have the the Finnish ones. We have the oh, I, uh, did
1: you, you said the Croatian? Yeah, yeah we've got Norwegian, Finnish, Croatian, and um, we have New Zealand. Most
2: importantly, we've got the Portuguese because they're making their show tomorrow, they've got to fly back to Portugal and record their show tomorrow evening. They are
3: very cool. Okay, so that gives us an idea of the spread of Taskmaster around the world. Yes. Um, so what,
1: of wh- course, most recently, um. It's um, the most recent taskmaster to go out is the French-Canadian taskmaster. And um, also, as you know, we've just recently announced there's going to be an Australian taskmaster, which is terribly exciting.
3: Yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting how it's not necessarily been the English language, you know, versions that go first. It's, you know, like you were mentioning, the Nordics, lots of different places. So, yeah, and all, obviously lots of different styles of humour. So. Um, Tell me about your involvement in the international versions and how they vary.
2: Well, I was just talking to the Norwegian taskmaster, Atler, about this because we've learned as we've gone along, well, I've learned how much or how little to get involved because what I've learned is that they know their countries far better than me. They know their viewers better than I do. So we we are quite hands-off. We do insist that it looks the same and sounds the same, but in terms of the humour, that's down to them. I definitely don't mess with that. So they stick to the format, but they're free, they're free to take it in different directions. And each country has got a little tweak on the format. And we're absolutely fine with that. I think that's the secret of the success is letting them get on with it.
3: And Isabel, in terms of shopping it both as finished tape and formats, how do you decide kind of which territory uh, to go after with which format?
1: Okay, so actually we started with tape in Australia but they are the last ones so far to pick up the format. So it really just all depends. So we started in um, Australia on um, the BBC pay channel UKTV, confusingly called UKTV. Grew an audience there, um, got a fan base. Uh, It then also played on SBS, the second window. Um, And then after a few years was picked up. Um, as a format, and as you know, it's now going to be for it's going to be on ten, Paramount's ten. And so that's one example. But um, normally, we go out with format first, and then um, with the original program. And we're also selling the origi- the UK. We're selling the UK program, but also the New Zealand program. We'll be selling the Australian program, all versions.
3: And tell me a bit about what's in store for guests at the event this evening.
2: Well, in just under five minutes, I think, I have to say some words, which I'll be so happy when that's over. But I'm just going to introduce myself and how how the idea came about, because it's quite an interesting story, I think. I won't bore you with it now, though. So I'm going to tell everyone where it came from, and then we're going to enjoy some cocktails. And there are tasks set up around the place. You can see little rubber ducks everywhere. And on the tables, we've designed some tasks for people to do, which they may or may not do. And then we're going for dinner. But it's mainly just... We've all got this thing in common that we make this weird program in different corners of the world. So I could talk endlessly with these people about it and that's what I plan to do.
3: And it's kind of seeping into other parts of life. I've known about lots of stag and Hindus yeah, yeah. that incorporate Taskmaster. How, how much are you kind of not across those, you know, in a yeah. personal way, but yeah, how do you feel about that?
2: I'm overjoyed. I mean, I am across it in a personal way because the people ask me all the time, can I set them a task? And then, stupidly, I tend to say yes. Because why wouldn't you? You know, it's such a nice thing to help people with. So it's in schools, it's in stags, scout groups. Premier League football teams do it. Wolves do do their own version. Um, Weddings have been themed around it. We've had two proposals at at the house in task form. We've opened the door and people have been proposing to each other with tasks. So, yeah, it's very odd that it's seeped into people's lives.
3: Fantastic. And it's not just about Taskmaster here. There are... Avalon are also involved in another of your shows, so tell me a bit about that.
2: Yes. I've got a new show coming out next month called The Horn Section TV Show, which is a sitcom. It's my first narrative fictional show, but it's not that fictional. It's about a man called Alex Horn who's got a band and he's got a TV show, but he wants his own TV show. So it's loosely about me and my ego. And, uh, yeah, it comes out next month. It's got people like John Oliver in from America and then special guests from England. Each week there's a different celebrity who appears in it. And I'm really excited. It's very different to Taskmaster, but it's the same sense of humour.
3: And Isabel, tell me a bit about the process, yeah, in terms of how you're positioning that with buyers.
1: Um, Well, um, unsurprisingly, the channels that are taking their own version of Taskmaster and those that are picking up the UK version, um, mainly have already picked it up. we haven't got air dates yet obviously it's only just going out in the uk which is great um but we're positioning it as a sitcom um but also you know that it helps that it's from the creator of taskmaster um so that's how we're positioning it yeah
3: and um is it your first time back at in Cannes since, you know, the pandemic, since the break? Or have you been you were attending the the kind of dipping in the toe? We were
1: here in April and we were actually here at last MIPCOM with the very scaled down MIPCOM. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, we've been here for a year.
3: Mm -hmm. But does this one feel a bit different?
1: Oh, very, very different. Yeah, certainly from the response we've had to coming to this party, all the guests we've invited, they're all here, they're all ready. Um, for MIPCOM. I think they've missed it and I think it's going to be really busy and also fun. I think people just want to have fun.
3: And in terms of the Avalon Library, what are uh, some of the other shows and titles um, for buyers to look out for?
1: Um, Well, we've also got um, on the scripted side um, Buffering, Ian Sterling, um, sitcom which is for ITV2 with the second season coming up. Starstruck. Well, that goes from strength to strength. Um, we're also on the factual side, um, talking to buyers about Queens of Clean, um, and uh, which is on you probably know on on E4. And we have Naked Alone and Racing to Get Home.
3: And yeah, tell me a bit about that format. It sounds like a bit of a cross between Naked and Afraid and Hunted. Is that is that a fair description?
1: Uh, well, it's got, yeah, you could, I suppose you can put that in there, yeah. It's, it's funny, um, you know, it's, obviously there's um, an element of jeopardy. Um, there is, it's a race, um, each, each episode is self-contained and it's just one race between two couples. Um, couple, we couple up the people who don't necessarily know each other. Um, so, yes, I would say, you know, there's a real survival element in there, but there's also competition in there and um, humour, jeopardy. So it's kind of different.
3: And finally, kind of what's just on your kind of main kind of to-do list here at MIPCOM? Um, and what do you think some of the kind of trends coming out of the market might be in terms of the kind of macro things that are going on in the industry at the moment?
1: I think there's a lot of... There's a lot of talk about fast channels, um, and I'll be interested to see um, how many of those take off over the next two years or so. Um, I think there's also a trend that there, there is great interest in comedy, which is great for us. I've been selling comedy for many, many years, and um, it went through the doldrums or was something that was a bit difficult. And now I think there's a lot of lot of demand for it. People want to laugh. They're coming out of, you know couple of horrendous years we're probably heading heading for another horrendous year or two aren't we but um, yeah I think as far as I'm concerned good entertainment um, and shows that yeah entertain more than anything yeah
3: and Alex in terms of yeah kind of you being across the kind of the live comedy market as well is that something you're seeing as well in terms of audiences um, kind of coming back to to stand up
2: I hope so Um, I was at Edinburgh this year at the festival as a punter. I went with my family to watch stuff, and it was busy and lively and fun. It felt like this festival, you know, the return. But it's not easy, I don't think, out there. People are quite picky with where they spend their money. People want to be guaranteed a good time with, you know, less disposable income. So, yeah. Yeah. I guess I'm doing less live than I used to because of telly. But we're with the band. We're going to do another tour soon, so we're hoping that people people need to be entertained when times are tough, don't they? So I guess we're hoping to give them an an alternative and just a bit of fun. I mean, everything I do is meant to just be take your mind off things.
0: How to Live to 101 is a new series from the BBC Studio Science Unit, co produced together with Chinese streamer Migu, following presenter Dr. Michael Mosley as he travels around the world meeting an array of age defying characters to learn about their lifestyles and unlock secrets to longevity. A former TV producer specialised in biology and medicine, Mosley is well known for series including Horizon, The Genius of Invention, and Meet the Humans. He was at MIPCOM in Cannes last week together with How To Live To 101 producer Peter Oxley where they spoke to Nico Franks about the show.
4: Hi, I'm Dr Michael Mosley, and I am presenter of How To Live To 101. And I am Peter Oxley and I am the series producer of How To Live To 101.
3: So tell me about the show and its origins.
4: Sure, so I am now 65 and my dad died at the age of 74 and I quite like the idea of living longer than that. And I've done a lot of uh, science documentaries. I got approached by BBC studios who said, are you interested in doing this? Um, And they had some absolutely fascinating new science to talk about, which is always important to me. But um, the centre of it is um, super-agers, all these people who are in their 70s, 80s, 90s, but who are decades younger than that when it comes to attitude, but also to their biological age. So they form the sort of centerpiece of many of the programs, and they are hilarious and funny and uh, extraordinary in all sorts of ways. But um, also, as I said, there's lots of new science and also lots of takeaway tips, which is kind of what I'm mean into. i also was very interested to find out about myself. What's my real biological age? and How well am I really aging? Uh, and so uh, my thing is that I obviously get stuck in and test myself and get all these lovely experts to do tests on me and tell me how I'm doing.
3: And those participants, are they all from the UK or are they from around the world?
4: Not at all. I'm shot all over the world. Um, so we were in Japan, in Okinawa, many European um, countries, uh, the States, I'm also filming in China and um, they are a great, rich mixture of people. Uh, Many of them um, were interviewed in English, Um, quite a few of them were interviewed in their native tongue and then translations available for that. Um, We were in France, Germany, Italy, Greece, you name it. Uh, We went there. We were lucky because obviously this was during COVID, so we were lucky that we managed to get in and out of some of these countries, granted how difficult it was. Mm. But um, that's kind of what adds richness, is the fact that there's such a variety of people Um, with very different experiences of life. Mm
3: -hmm. And as the producer, how did you navigate all those different countries?
5: Well, each country came with its own challenges, um, but we had an amazing production team who were abreast of all the latest uh travel advisories um they would be in touch with embassies and uh filming commissions and uh, making sure that you know we were able to get in and, w- and find out what you know requirements there were And it didn't wasn't all plain sailing michael at one point um got covid contracted covid a week before we were due to start a, a four-week filming block in the states so the entire schedule had to be ripped up and um <laughs> redone um, but uh, yeah, it was um, we we were lucky on the whole. You know, we we managed to swerve our way round, you know, some of the uh, some of the, the, the more extreme difficulties posed by COVID.
3: And in terms of the, the channels that it will be launching on, is that confirmed?
5: It's not. It's, uh, it's a BBC studio self commission with co-production from uh, Migu uh, Television in China, who are a big streaming platform um, uh, with something like 400 million subscribers. Um, but the reason why we're here at MIPCOM is obviously to to find buyers for the series. And we think it's going to have a you know a, a massive global appeal because it's you know, because it's got such a sort of international reach, we've been to so many places, and it's, it's a subject that's of interest to everybody.
3: Yes, and what were some of the tips you learned? I imagine not coming to MIPCOM every year is, is probably <laughs> helpful. Kind of high and it,
4: I mean, one of the really interesting things for me was um, we went to California where they have, um, uh, at the University of Southern California, they have developed a new test called Um, It's called uh, the clock test, also known as the epigenetic test. And what it can do is very precisely tell you your biological age as opposed to what it says on your passport. And once you have that, you can start testing all sorts of things which are said to reverse ageing. So um, that was a really novel piece of kit, if you like, At one extreme, you probably don't want to do this, um, they have shown that if you infuse yourself with fresh young blood from a young and healthy person who's doing lots of exercise, uh, this is a very good way uh, to uh, reverse uh, uh, your epigenetic age. uh, I've got um, three sons, all of whom are running marathons, so I'm keeping them on standby. uh, But more seriously, they're doing it, um, they're taking blood products and doing it um, trials on people with Parkinson's and other brain diseases to see if it will help them. Um, the more basic tips uh, are things like, not so much just exercise, but the type of exercise. So, for example, press-ups and squats. One of the reasons they are so effective is not just to build muscle, but uh, when you do a squat or a press-up, it leads to this big surge in blood Um, to your brain and the oxygen there, and that in turn releases um, the substance called BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which is like fertilizer for the brain. So it turns out the press-ups and squats are not just good uh, for your body, but for your brain as well. And there's a spin-off of that um, I filmed with a guy who's a skydiver, and he's done 15,000 jumps. So you could do that, because you get these quite extreme variations in the oxygen levels. And also in Israel, we looked at some fantastic research where they put them into decompression chambers. And this has been shown to be very effective for the treatment of strokes and also long COVID. But they think it might also um, help uh, keep your brain in good shape. So there's that. And within the exercise regime as well, we went off to the Faroe Islands, where there was um, a group of women who, six years ago, had, were perimenopausal, all in their late, mid to late 40s, all showing signs of bone weakness, osteoporosis, uh, took to playing six-side football, five-side football, uh, and um, Within six years, they had reversed their bone—you know—their bone strength was now that of a sort of 30-year-old. So it shows you the sort of things you can do if you want to do it. Uh, even, the other way is just to hop. Turns out hopping is very good for bone health, particularly for your sort of um, thighs and things like that. And um, we also looked at one of my favourite subjects, which is intermittent fasting. Um, I'm kind of well known for that because 10 years ago I did a Horizon film for the BBC called "Eat Fast, Live Longer." which triggered our current, current fascination with intermittent fasting, where you cut your calories either a few days a week or, you know, cutting the hours within which you eat, which is known as time-restricted eating. That has become a worldwide phenomenon, but it was triggered by this single horizon 10 years ago. And it turns out that seems to be at the heart of um, slowing down the ageing process. That's one of the things we found in Okinawa when we went there, Japanese. But also with the fasting monks, in Thessalonica. Um, so there's a kind of a universal thing going on there. And then the challenge is obviously, uh, if you don't fancy fasting, um, how do you get around that? And we've been off to um, film with dogs <laughs> being, uh, who are being put on a particular medication approach. But um, there are lots of really terrific kind of tips within the series. And some things which are, in a way, obvious press ups and squats but not obvious what their benefits are. And so people often, you know, you're told to go and do more exercise, but that really isn't effective. What you've got to do is be very precise. So I say, I say first thing in the morning, out of bed, do your press-ups and squats. I do 30 of each, sometimes more, I do it with my wife because we know we'll do it together. if you don't do it then you probably never do it. You need to find a trigger. Some people are having a cup of coffee, you go there and you do your press-ups and squats. Why are you doing it? because it's good for your muscles, because it's, these are the single best exercise for working the major muscles of your body, but also because, lo and behold, it's good for your brain as well.
3: Fascinating. And Peter, so you mentioned the Chinese streamer there. So yep. in terms of um, their involvement editorially, uh, were they quite kind of hands-on or kind of did they let you get on with it?
5: No, they, they've let us get on with it to a to, to a very large extent um we uh, they approached us because obviously the science unit uh, has you know massive experience making this sort of uh, content and um and we were told that um look you guys know what you're doing our audience loves your output it loves science content it can take quite a lot of detail so um, go off and make make your series. The only thing they asked us to do was to include a certain number of Chinese stories, um, which was, you know, which was absolutely fine. We found some wonderful stories uh, in Beijing, Hong Kong, we filmed at the Shaolin Temple, um, where home of the warrior monks who all practice meditation as well as Kung Fu. And we did a story spinning out of that, of the benefits of meditation and how it can help reduce stress levels uh, in, in, the, in the body. Um, so, no, was, it was been a pleasure working with them. And, um, you know, hopefully, hopefully there'll be more opportunities in years to come.
3: And Michael, so you're very well known in the UK for your on-screen um, activities, but you were mentioning uh, before we started recording that you, you've you been to MIPCOM yeah. and CAN before, but but not for a while. So tell me a bit about how... You kind of see things now Absolutely. after a while. The world has while.
4: changed enormously. I used to come uh, because before I became a television presenter, I was actually an executive producer. So I used to come here with a contingent of BBC people. This was obviously long before BBC Studios was kind of created and where we were all in-house. And so it was, you know, you talk to mainly people like Discovery or ProSieben or France 2 or whatever it was and um, coming back now, I gather it's all about the streamers, it's a completely different audience, and it is the Chinese, Migu. You know, I'm hugely grateful because they are providing money for, you know, which enables a lot of um, content to continue, which might otherwise struggle. I mean, I know BBC Studios have massively diversified into the streamers, uh, but I have to say, the restaurants are all packed. There's no sign that they have come. There's a very Uh, you know, any reduction in enthusiasm, uh, but it's it's a completely new world. Um, I, you know, I retired from BBC about four or five years ago. I'm 65 now. And I went off and I I still make programmes, but I'm less involved. And I write books and I, you know, write a column. Um, So it's been fascinating coming back. And as I said, there's still a lot of people here, clearly uh, with a lot of enthusiasm now that COVID is over to kind of gather, chat, drink, eat, and, do deals.
3: and another thing that's changed in those kind of intermittent years is the amount of kind of, I guess, misinformation around health that people access online. You can't help but see it sometimes, you know, when you kind of scroll down a bit too far and things start to get a bit strange. How important do you think series like yours are in, in terms of kind of combating that?
4: Um, I hope um, very important because the BBC still has a sort of brand um, and is known for accuracy and um, you know impartiality and things like that. And, yeah, there is a sea of absolute tosh out there, lots of nonsense, lots of rubbish, and um, unfortunately a lot of people believe it as well. Um, so I'm on Twitter, I follow a lot of stuff, I tweet occasionally, um, I do battle with anti-vaxxers and things like that occasionally, and uh, it's very sad because a lot of misinformation leading to a lot of early and unnecessary deaths. But, on the other hand, there is a big body of people who genuinely want to go to trusted sources, and um, long may that continue.
0: LA and London-based children's media company Moonbug Entertainment hired former ProSieben Satainz and a and A&E Network's exec Nicholas Eglow as its first EMEA chief two years ago. Last year, the business, established on the back of YouTube IP like Cocomelon, Blippi and Little Baby Bum, was bought out by Candle Media, the investment vehicle established by Disney Alums, Kevin Mayer and Tom Staggs, with backing from private equity firm Blackstone Group. Egg spoke to me about how the company has grown through forging partnerships with platforms all around the world and its ambitions for scaling further.
6: I'm Nicholas Eglau, I'm the Mention director for EMEA and APAC for Moonbug Entertainment. We are specialised in preschool, kids IP and exist since almost five years. I joined Moonbug in 2019.
0: Tell us, for those who are not familiar with Moonbug, what the company is, is all about. You, you've hinted a little bit of it there, but um, you know, talk about some of the properties and how the company has grown so
6: quickly in such a short space of time. Moombach's idea was basically to own the most successful digital uh, preschool IPs and all these IPs existed before, they're all born on YouTube. We believe that YouTube is the platform where big brands are born these days. Um, We have acquired more than 20 IPs in the course of the last four years. Um, Some of them are really known like Crocromelon, Blippi or Little Baby Bum.
0: Some of them are well known, but as you say, in a certain universe, Kids' entertainment is changing. The audience is changing. That's the the, the sort of
6: epicenter that you're you're targeting. Yes, um, we we like the, the the target group of young children. We think that um, they're very loyal viewers. They, if once they they discover a brand, they stick to the brand. There's a lot of co-viewing with parents. We also like that. Uh, so you know, that's a joint experience. We also believe that if if you manage to bring values to children in a nice and entertaining way, we can really do this world better. So for Moonbark things like resilience, self-confidence or empathy are very important values that we try to include in our shows in a very entertaining way.
0: And you joined the company a few years ago, but the, uh, the founder Renny Rickman, tell us a little bit about his background and a little bit
6: about yours and how you came together. Um, So, René um, had this idea while he was at Disney, and he was uh, pitching this idea. It never got off the ground, but he liked the idea of having a a kind of new space for young children's IP, and he and John Robson, the co-founder, created Moonbark. Um, René and I were introduced, I think, five, six years ago by a common friend, and we stayed in contact. I was following what he was doing, and I was very convinced that this idea is really Uh, clever and very good, because streaming services, TV channels, uh, mobile operators, they all need content that stands out. And if you manage to find the right IPs across the world, and you put them under a new umbrella and make them better and bigger, you actually manage something really important, which is you give them IPs that help them to become better and increase their engagement on their platforms.
0: But you've run some very significant businesses in terms of the, the, the A&E Networks uh, channels business across Europe. You, you spent a number of years at RTL, at ProSieben as well, so it's a very different world, isn't it, going from those those broadcast businesses, many of which have very very well established new media ventures, let's not forget, but um, it, it, it's still a, a very different business, isn't it,
6: Moonbug? Yes, indeed. Um, as you mentioned, ProSieben, RTL, a what they all have in common, they are very much at that time based on linear channels and I could see that over the years it was like a, a bit of an uphill battle against new forms of streaming services coming in and I felt that like Mumbach was a bit different because we basically all our investment thesis was based on the growth of streaming services so we could see that our content was working whether on YouTube or Netflix or Sky, RTL, these are old clients so a lot of my previous <laughs> Companies are now our partners. So really used to this other network, whether it's MediaSet, whether it's TF1, companies I worked with or for in the past. And um, is his reference there. So so Rene was at Disney. Yes, he was at Disney. I'm um, sorry. He was a, a co-founder and co-owner of my major, uh, major Studio. He sold this to Disney, uh, stayed a few years and had some ideas. One of the ideas is basically the idea of Moombach, which then he traded outside Disney. Together with John and uh, the founder team,
0: and obviously um, Kevin Mayer and Tom Stags, also former Disney high flyers, came together again with with Rene um, just uh, last year, I think it was, or or the year before, when they uh, bought out the company for a very substantial sum. I'm not sure if it's ever been confirmed, but we're talking, you know, billions here. I mean, that that was a clear sign of, of the scale of the uh, the operation here and, and the potential
6: yes I'm very happy about uh, Kevin and Tom and Kendall working with us because they bring a lot of experience uh, they let us run the company but they come up with ideas when we have challenges we talk with them and you know they also have access to Blackstone uh, funds which are helpful so since they acquired us we continue to buy more IPs. so this year we acquired Two IPs. One's called Little Angel, which is one of the leading YouTube IPs in the world, and another one. It's called uh, Oddbots, part of One Animation, which was our second investment in Asia, based in Singapore, where we also have our a new hub for Asia. Asia is one of our big priorities. Um, we see a lot of growth happening there, and so we we now have a team there as well. But the price tag.
0: I mean, if, uh, obviously, different time, different place, and everything. But you know. Ten years ago, Disney paid about four billion for Lucasfilm, and uh, you know we're talking a sort of similar amount of money. Ten years on for a company which has some properties which are very well established on on YouTube, but in a in a different universe from obviously the Star Wars universe. You know, I guess a lot of people, media players, might look at those those two deals. I mean, not comparable. I'm I'm trying to draw a comparison.
7: Obviously, yeah.
6: I think the beauty of Moombug is that it's not just. On YouTube because that exactly is what we try to achieve is you know most of our IPs are on basically every possible platform whether it's Amazon, whether it's Netflix, whether it's YouTube, whether it's Hulu, whether it's Sky, Cartoon Networks we never really do exclusive deals with anyone because we don't believe that this is the right thing to do because our viewers and fans they want to watch us wherever they are so for us um, I think that's maybe the reason why Candle and Blackstone were interested in buying us. The business model is not just focused on one platform. And apart from that, obviously, we're not just doing uh, distribution of our content. We also are the leading kids label for preschoolers on Spotify. We also have a wide range of toys that you can see in all the markets where we are scaling our business. We are now started into games. So it's, it's more than just... Um, a YouTube company. That's how a lot of the brands have started. But we made sure that we basically create a 360 uh, product range uh, around those franchises. And we really believe we want to create franchises, which is what we believe. And that needs more than just distribution on a certain platform.
0: So the target age range is sort of zero to eight currently, but you know, are you sort of looking at older age groups as
6: well and thinking about expanding? We're always open to explore. Definitely we like the young audience group um, because we like the fact that those kids, you know, once they discover your brand, they're very loyal. They like to watch it together with their parents. Um, I think the older the kids get, the more independent they get in making their choices. So it's more difficult difficult for us. I I wouldn't say no, but... We need to be absolutely convinced that this would be the right uh, target because at the moment we feel very comfortable in the younger audience group because we have proven that we can also, one brand can help the other brand. So we're using like hub channels. We also started to launch linear channels across uh, Europe. So recently we launched um, in the Middle East. We're going to launch in Africa very soon. We launched in Turkey and where we put all our brands, not just the big brands. You can see that those channels have a lot of our brands so we can if you had different age groups it would be much more difficult for us to launch these channels because you know there's such a big difference between a five-year-old and a nine-year-old so you have to you know we do so much research on these um, young children that you know we feel very comfortable in that group however if something would come up we would definitely be open
0: and um, you know in terms of your focus here at MIPS are you you primarily kind of looking for, for further distribution partners are you aiming to uncover new IP, you know, what, what sort of conversations are you having?
6: I think the most important, is probably that's what you heard from everyone, is to meet the people that I've seen on Zoom for the last two and a half years. I would say this is the, the really nice to do. Um, so we, I met people from Asia, I met people from US, from Europe, so this is like the most important, whether existing partners or prospects, it's equally nice. We also, as a team, are here from different parts of the world, first time we have a booth, so which is also very exciting. In terms of what my targets are for MIPCOM, definitely find uh, more partners. A lot of people come to us, they, they see the success of our brand, so when you look for engagement, when you look for strong IPs that almost guarantee audience, they come to us. We also have an eye on potential new IPs we could acquire as Moonbark. that's also part of our kind of um, mission in Cannes. and I would say those two things are the most important plus obviously seeing everyone that we've seen on screen the last three years.
0: Do you ever foresee a time when you might actually acquire some IP, which is very well established and, you know, recognizable, I guess more recognizable at a market like MIPCOM, you know, I'm talking a TV program and sort of, you know, just to try to exploit that and take that in a new direction.
6: I mean, we, we, we like the fact, we really like to focus on buying IPs. Um, so IP for us, The upside is that, you know, we can do whatever we want with that IP. I remember when I was on the broadcast side, whatever we did, we had to go back to someone who owned the IP to show, is it possible, can we do this? Because some platform came to us and they wanted to ask whether they could launch a new service. And as we were not owning the IPs, we had to go back asking the the rights holder. In this case, as we own the IPs, for me, it's just like paradise, because I can say, yeah, we can. I never really have to check because I know unless I've done something myself which will hold me back, I can do it, which is a really privilege and which is a big difference to my previous work. I think what we look for are IPs which have already a big audience, so they are discovered. Very often they are only discovered maybe on a couple of platforms, but then on YouTube and maybe a couple of others. I think what we can bring to the table is when we look at these shows, we're going to increase the, the the value of the show. We're going to increase the cadence of new episodes. We also look at the whole value chain. What can we do with an IP to help grow? So we look for IPs which already have a certain size, and which are profitable, and we try to make them more profitable and help to grow them.
0: Finally, you know, obviously, there are global events taking place around this market. It's lovely here. The sun's shining, Rosé's out, in, and everyone's <laughs> back in camp, which is great. But... Uh, in other parts of the world, not too far from here, we, we, we have a, a war uh, which continues and, and it's pushing up energy prices. And uh, that's just one aspect of it. Economies are unstable at the moment. How is that affecting what you're doing? And, and you know, how do you anticipate it's going to impact things in, in the coming year?
6: Um, so far, I think we definitely I mean, inflation is something that we all see. We see uncertainty. Uncertainty is never a good thing. Um, so far we have been lucky in how the business is going. I think, I believe good content for children is something that works well even in not so good periods because it can give a bit of an anchor to families and children, especially young children. Um, obviously we are very concerned about what's happening. Um, we, we, we're trying to kind of continue with our um, vision for Wunberg, uh further grow the company, but definitely these times are also for some of our clients are challenging. Um, so we obviously hope that there's better news, I don't know, soon, I don't know when, but it would definitely help everyone here. And I think first step is that everybody's back in, in Cannes, which is great. After all, the, uh, whether it's the wars or COVID. We had all these kind of external factors and I think I see it as a first step this year to be back and look forward to be back next year.
0: German production company Bavaria Fiction hired Sky Deutschland senior vice president of original production Marcus Ammon last year following the exit of exec producer of international television series Moritz Pölzer to ITV Studios. During his time at Sky, Amon commissioned Bavaria's big-budget U-boat drama Das Boot, as well as lavish Tom Tickwa period piece Babylon Berlin, described as the most expensive drama in German TV history. He spoke to me about his first 12 months at Bavaria, plans for bolstering the company's international co-production activities and streamer relationships, and the increasingly competitive German drama market. Marcus Amon, thank you very much for, for joining us. Uh, formerly Senior Vice President of Original Production at Sky Deutschland, um, where you were responsible for the development of series including Babylon Berlin, Das Boot, Pagan Peak. Um, you took up the post of Managing Director at Bavaria Fiction. A little over a year ago now so tell us about that transition.
8: It was a nice opportunity for me I've been with Sky for more than 12 years and I was given the opportunity to reinvent myself over and over again and uh, this is something I'm very grateful Um, and the last years at Sky we're dealing with original production as you said and I was given then the chance to see things from the other side to change the perspective from the commissioner's side to the producer side and that sounded very striking to me and I knew Bavaria from my work at Sky we were commissioning a series called Das Boot at Bavaria, and uh, so I luckily knew a couple of people, and I knew about the atmosphere there and about uh, the the ways things things happen at Bavaria, and that that sounded all very attractive at that point in time. And so I took this chance and and moved over to the other side of
0: life. And how's that been? Tell us about those first twelve months. Um, you know some of the things that you've put in place, some of the changes that you've made
8: and the ambitions moving forward. So Bavaria decided to, to um, have this new position called Managing Director Content that, that, that I filled in and this gave me the opportunity uh, to create my own agenda and to first of all analyze what's already there, what's, what's, what's going pretty well, what's not, what's not so well. And I, the, I had the opportunity to, cre- to create my task list and uh, one, one of the things is to move more and more uh, towards the streamer side. We are very good, Bavaria is very good in producing stuff for the public broadcasters, RD and ZDF in Germany, also for RTL, there are some shows, uh, but uh, we have hardly any shows for the Netflix, Amazon, and Disneys of this world. And this is one of the... Of the uh, most important uh, tasks. The second thing is we wanted to move into new areas where Bavaria hasn't been strong in the past. One of which is creating documentaries. It's a it's a field of content that is highly in, in high demand from all sides. Let it be the, the streamers, let it be the um, the public broadcasters. Uh, so we decided to hire a producer for documentaries, uh, and he's he's been in place since March developing very interesting um, uh, projects. Secondly we are moving more and more in the comedy space. There is one producer dedicated in my team for comedy. We announced an exclusive partnership with one of the leading writers for comedies in Germany. Uh, So that was a thing we changed uh, in the past 12 months. Um, And of course um, there uh, there is some internal stuff to to uh, move ahead, uh, for example, the image of Bavaria. I guess we this this brand, this very traditional brand would deserve to shine a little more. this is something I want to work on. Um, so it's a huge field of agenda points that I have in front of me.
0: And um, in terms of those, those streamers that you say uh, you want to work more with, you know can you tell us about anything that you might have in, in development? you know mm-hmm. have you
8: got some projects you're hoping to get away in the next few months? That's completely right. you know I know that I cannot approach uh, streamers with empty hands. So first thing was to set up a couple of developments um, uh, with with riders um, that, that we've known already, um, or, or new riders that came on board. Um, and currently we develop roughly 15 to 20 series that will be ready for uh, presentation soon. Um, and uh, these are all projects that would, to what I think, would be very much um, Appreciated by, by, by streamers.
0: And what about competition in the German marketplace? It's very interesting um, that, that things are kind of hotting up. I mean, it's the same all over Europe, I guess, you know, but um, players like Leonine, for example, and uh, Telepool, owner of um, the distributed global stream with its acquisition of uh, Westbrook and yeah. uh, Jan Freeman, who used to run Red Arrow, uh, moving over there and then leaving and, and, and now heading up Peter Chernin's North Road. Company and, and taking back Red Arrow U.S. operations. Um, the German content market has opened up massively uh, over the past few years, and, and you know, in, in no small part, thanks to some of the work that you did at, uh, at Sky with with you know the international blockbuster that was Babylon Berlin and, and, and Das Boot. So, just tell us a bit more about the uh, the market as it stands.
8: As you say, Jonathan, there's a high competition in Germany. First of all, you have the public broadcasters that are constantly under pressure, just like any other public broadcaster in the world, probably. Then there are the free-to-air, private commercial channels like the ProSieben Group and the RTL Group. And on top there are uh, all the streamers that came on board, uh, one after the other. Um, In the beginning, it was important for us to get all these briefings in, in order to understand what do they all need and where do they differentiate from each other and i think this is this is also the tricky thing for especially for the streamers who of course need to grow their sub base they need to gain new subscription uh, hence they need to be reaching out to a broad audience as broad as possible audience on the other hand it would be important for them to also differentiate from others to be to stand out with what they are offering. And this might be a conflict to be broad on the one hand, to be niche uh, on the other hand. But my challenge is and my job is to really get these details, get a sense for what exactly is, is there, their need and to fulfill these needs with the highly creative projects that we are offering. And
0: can you just explain a little bit about, you know, how things are going to work, kind of, or how they do work currently, and how they might work moving forwards? I mean, Bavaria Fiction is a, a subsidiary of Bavaria Film Group and ZDF Studios. So, ZDF Studios obviously has its own growth strategies as well. So, how do those two things kind of combine with your own
8: plans? I guess our shareholder structure with both Bavaria um, Film. This is owned by RD and ZDF Studios on the other hand, uh, this allows us uh, very solid basic business with the public broadcasters. So we are strong uh, in producing stuff for RD and ZDF and have always been doing a daily show, doing weekly shows, doing franchises and so on. Uh, But still of course our shareholders are equally happy if we um, manage to get additional business with other players in the market. And I don't feel any restraints from the streamer side uh, with regards to our shareholder structure. So this business is very open-minded from from all sides.
0: Babylon, Berlin, Das Boot, they were both very large productions, the biggest productions perhaps that the uh, the German market has seen in, in, in TV. Um, You know, in terms of the sort of the scale and and, and the ambition of the projects that you're looking at moving forwards, uh, are we going to see anything on that kind of level and given the uncertainty and, and, you know, the challenges that we're seeing in the marketplace and the continuing pressure on on budgets, you know,
8: are are series on that kind of scale achievable anymore? Mm -hmm. I guess they are achievable uh, achievable, and you see this, you know, Babylon Berlin has been the most... uh, um, the Shining, also the most expensive show from Germany at that time. But uh, half a year later, or a year later, there were other shows that were even more expensive. And now take The Swarm, uh, which is the f- fantastic Shining project from ZDF, produced by a couple of, of it's a international co-production, many partners involved. But this is, for me, one of the reasons why I'm here in Cannes, to meet potential partners for future co-productions, and... Um, not the case that Bavaria had been slowing down in that area, but uh, it's still a room to grow for us. Um, there isn't too much on the agenda yet, um, uh, but I'm very open to any kind of co-production, even if even in times where uh, you know things are getting more and more difficult. Uh, talking about inflation and and shortage in in skilled labour and so on, but still we are we are trying to. To, to to get more more international uh, shine and more international power.
0: Absolutely, yeah. I mean, you mentioned the the, the talent shortages, the, uh, the rising production costs as a result of, of Covid has obviously been an issue. And, and, and the uh, the fact that we weren't able to actually produce things for a certain period of time, that's all put pressure on the industry. And now we have a, a looming kind of energy crisis as well in Europe as a result of the, the war in Ukraine. So, you know, is that also having a, a trickle-down effect as well on, on production at this stage?
8: Not that we are feeling that yet, but I guess with a certain um, delay, I guess it will have an impact on the, on the production volume uh, and on the way things are being produced. Um, can't tell any concrete uh, consequence at this point in time. But it would strike me, it would surprise me if that wouldn't have all these major changes in the world, globally, economically, would not have an impact on our industry.
0: And um, given that backdrop, though, uh, there's still an awful lot of optimism around the market. And obviously, with the return of, of MIPCOM as well, that's delivered a huge boost to the industry. How do you see the next 12 months playing out?
8: I guess there will still be a huge need for production and also for, inter- for, for original production. Original production is the point where all the players can differentiate, can be, can be unique, can shine individually. Um, this is why I still believe heavily into, into original production and also into local production. Um, so uh, th- th- there might be uh, less in volume. But I'm not pessimistic that, uh, that it will completely slow down or that it will, um, uh, will be a major change to, to the worse. I, I still believe in the, in the, in the power of, of, of local production, definitely.
0: If we were to sit down a year from now or, or two years even and, and uh, talk again about where Bavaria Fiction's is at, where, where do you hope to take the business?
8: I hope that we'll manage to get more business running um, in, the, in the streaming area, in the co-production area and at the same time uh, increasing the core business with, uh, with the public broadcasters. And
0: tell us a little bit more about that, that co-production strategy and you know, uh, the conversations that you'd like to be having with, with producers uh, all around the world or, well, what territories you're, you're particularly keen to work with.
8: Uh, first of all, it's uh, definitely Europe, I guess, because we are, you know, uh, closest from an also mentality point of view. Uh, I could imagine to go into co-production with some of our projects that we have currently in development with uh, players in, let it be, Italy, France, the, the Scandinavian uh, countries, yeah. etc. Um, uh, but uh, at the same time, we are at the very early stage of these uh, of these uh, discussions and negotiations. Uh, but going forward, talking about 12 to 24 months, I hope that we, c- we will be more successful here. Yeah. If there's
0: one challenge in the industry right now that you'd like to see solved, what would that be? What would
8: make your job that much easier to get you to where you want to be? That there will be two points. One is the inflation that is really unforeseeable how this will um, develop over the next weeks and months and even years. And on the other hand, it's the talent shortage. You know, the, the difficulty uh, to get the right talent for, for the right project.
0: And when you're talking about talent, are you talking about on-screen talent, behind the screen? I mean, both are, are problematic.
8: Uh, first instance, writers. Riders is key, it's the, the beginning of everything. And now talking for Germany, we, we face a definite lack in, 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 in riders. Um, and this, this would be one of my wishes, if I would have any, to, to have more talented uh, riders uh, available.
0: Dutch broadcaster RTL4 commissioned a new original competition format from Banerjee-owned Shine Netherlands earlier this year focused on the talents of balloon artists. Blow Up has since been picked up for local versions by Seven in Australia and RTL in Germany. Endemol Shine Netherlands Managing Director Rob van den Vleugel and Head of Development Sil Gertsen spoke to me about the show, how it fits in with other titles like Lego Masters, Domino Challenge and Race for the Rings, plus how the company
7: is dealing with the rising costs of production. Okay, well I'm uh, Rob van den Vleugel, I'm a Managing Director of uh, Animal Shine uh, Netherlands.
9: And I'm Sil Gertsen, I'm Head of Development at Animalshine Netherlands.
0: Welcome back to MIPCOM, it's great to, uh, to be back here again, how does it feel from your perspective?
7: Yeah, it feels great again because uh, I think we haven't been here for two years, and it's really good to see see everyone again and also uh, feel a like a vibrant um, atmosphere here. And of course, we're also very happy because we're here to promote Blow Up, um, so we're quite happy. As yes.
0: the atmosphere is great here, we're on the Banerjee stand, the new eco-friendly. Well, it's not a booth. It's a, more of a mansion, sort of just at the, at the side of the, the palais. It's obviously a, a very important market for Banerjee and, and, and a very important sort of signal that you're sending out to the industry.
7: Uh, yes, it is. And it's, I think it's really important to state that we are, we are Banerjee and uh, that we're quite a big uh, company. And that we have lots of good ideas, so I think it's a good statement.
0: And um, from your point of view, in terms of the development side of things, and obviously it's it's, it's great to be bringing uh, new formats to market. That's what it's all about. So um, tell us a little bit about the genesis of, of Blow Up, and uh, you know where it's where it's been picked up so
9: far. No, no, it's great to be to see that it's really picking up in this in this, at this MIP. And um, no, it it all started. We tell the story a lot, but. Uh, it all started like a year and a half ago, um, one of our creators came to us with the idea of doing something with balloon art, we didn't know about the world so we we, we went deep into the balloon art world uh, created a pilot to see if it's interesting to if these people work on balloon art and, 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 and show it and that really worked and that was the moment when the, the network picked it up and then it was really quickly picked up in Australia after that uh, and then now Germany after that, so we really feel it's, it's, it's blowing up, let's, let's, go, let's say it like that. So it's really traveling at this moment, so um, that's nice, yeah.
0: I mean, it's, it's, it's one thing doing a sort of a, a mass entertainment cooking format, for example,
9: like Masterchef. Um, balloons is fairly niche. It is niche, smaller, but also that also makes it interesting because it's a different world where you step into. So it's also a magical world for the viewer. So that makes it for us interesting. I think also for the viewer, for the kids that really love it. Um, and we saw it in the ratings also that it's, it's ultimate family viewing. And that I think that's, that's the magic of it. And that's very much a sort of a a market you've gone for previously with uh,
0: Domino Challenge was another
7: format that that came out of the Netherlands as well. Yes, because of course we have a history of Domino and um, so we uh, uh, co-created Domino Challenge which was also in June, May, June last year which also did uh, quite good. So we're now talking about uh, another season as well. But I think there's a with chill set also with the balloons. I think it's, it's a sort of appealness a with, uh, with, with balloons because I, I remember when we had a pilot, uh, we made those beautiful uh, pieces and then there were all cameramen and people just trying to get those pieces in their car and to show their kids. So there's a real attractiveness of this balloon things. You want to touch it, you want to see it. It's really colorful. And what we say is we're going to cheer up the world with our balloons. I think that's really nice in this time um, and very attractive, I think. And,
0: uh, you know, how do you go about spreading the show? Obviously, you're you're down here sort of selling it. That's the main avenue, of course. But um, given that it is such a sort of a a niche art form, I suppose, you know, how do you go about sort of um, spreading the word?
7: Well, to be honest, the word was spelled quite easily itself because we we had a first promo and then also with the broadcast at RTL, they saw the first promo and they really were fascinated and appealed by this. So they understood what it could be. And it happened also very quickly in Australia, and uh, I think also in Germany. So it's 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 something when you see, well the, the nice thing is what what uh, what Sil said that the first time when you think about balloon artists, you think a little bit we always say you think a little bit of a of a clown who folds a little dog, but then when you see what they can make it's a sort of mesmerizing thing you know it's like it's like a fantasy world. Um, but everyone knows balloons, so it's not it's niche. But of course, everyone knows balloons. Everyone, if you go to a party, there are balloons. So I think it's not something which you're you never seen, but you're really amazed by what people can make. So I think that's the attraction of the format. And obviously,
0: um, you know, it, it, it's kind of slotting into a, a catalog which also includes uh, uh, Lego Masters, which is obviously a kind of a, a massive hit show for for Banerjee.
7: Yes, yeah, we're also producing that for the same broadcaster. So. I think it's a little bit in the same target group, it's it's, it's children, young children watching it, it with their parents, which of course is uh, in the target group of RTL. I think it's also important what we did with, with Blow Up is that we we tried to, in the marketing campaign, we really tried to reach this young children as well. So we had like ads in the Donald Duck, it's a, sort of a Disney magazine for young children, which is a very, very big magazine in the Netherlands, so I think we had an ad there and then people, young people saw that. So if you want to attract young people you have to find where they are and and where they are attracted by so i think that really worked well for uh, for blow up
0: and what about some of the other shows that uh, you're behind as well i'm thinking of race for the rings as well that's uh, um, recently began airing on rtl4 also in the netherlands
9: yeah we're bringing that also to the to the market so that's now officially in the, they're pitching it uh, so our bonniger colleagues are pitching it now Uh, that's very exciting Um, and that's a huge reality adventure show and um, and the beauty of that show is that it is with couples who are going to get married uh, and that brings another emotional level to the adventure reality shows we know and I think that really worked and we also saw that and that's also why a lot of the Punisher companies are now pitching that because it fits the adventure reality uh, genre that everybody's looking for, but brings that extra emotional layer to it. So I think that... Uh, I hope we uh, can announce more countries very soon, but I, uh, I think so, yeah.
7: yeah. And to add, I think it's important that that's, that's a form that we developed together with, uh, with Bo. He's a famous uh, host in the Netherlands. So that's also what we try to do, to work together with, uh, with talent. Uh, and develop uh, together. We've developed together this format with him.
0: So, I mean, the the adventure reality uh, uh, side of things, obviously uh, the challenges that the business has been going through, the, the whole world's been going through with, with COVID over recent years. I mean, it, it was hard to get that one uh, out of the gate, presumably.
7: We were lucky with that one because when we wanted to shoot, I think like three weeks before that, the, the lockdown was over, So, uh, but otherwise would be really difficult to shoot it, but we were lucky, so it was shot in uh, Jordania, um, so we could go there, so we didn't have problems with that one, but it was, it was uh, up front, it was quite exciting, okay, are, are we going to do it yes or no, and then uh, fortunately uh, the lockdown was, uh, how do you say, uh, cancelled, so we could go there, but yeah.
0: And in terms of the impact that that's had on the business, obviously, the industry has kind of been dealing with the rising costs of of production anyway, then add COVID on top of that. Now we have an energy crisis sweeping Europe as a result of the the war in Ukraine. So, you know, the sun's shining here and I don't want to put a downer on things, (laughs) but... um, you know it, it, it's uh it's tough times for a lot of people at the moment and um you know how's that kind of uh how are those dynamics sort of filtering through into production and development
9: No, i think it's it's of course it's pushing on the budgets and 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 but thank god in holland we're already good at uh, handling smaller budgets uh but i think so these networks are still looking for these network events for these these big shows and that's why we come in and i think that's still important for them uh, to bring in the viewers with those important few important shows so maybe they're going to do less shows but I still believe that they're going to do the shows that have impact that are big and that really uh, get an audience to their to their network so um, yes there's a lot of uh, uh, it's ent- a troubling time but I think there are still chances for us to jump into to create those big shows for them, yeah.
7: Yeah, I agree. I agree. It's what you said, still, is that what we feel a little bit that they're going to do perhaps less show, but uh, bigger marks, which really uh, stands out. Um, of course, everyone is talking about what's going to happen. Are we going to get a crisis? So yes, that's also a conversation we have with the broadcaster. But until now, we, we don't see that it's really said, okay, guys, we have half the budget. So I, I can't look in the future. I know it's a topic. But right now, we're still uh, in a very good position, I think. And, and well, everyone needs, still needs a good idea, I think. And we're in the, of course, in, our brand is a little bit in bigger and bigger shows, uh, not in the smaller uh, things. So I think we're still in the good corner, to be honest.
0: That's all for this episode, but you can hear more discussion by tuning in to our C21FM internet radio station, where you'll find new interviews airing from Monday. The podcast will be back next Friday. In the meantime, stay up to date with all the latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening.